It's good to see you made it this morning. I think I saw a couple of you kayaking in to get here. Some of you still think you're at the nine o'clock service. When you get home, adjust your clocks. Either way, you're here, and it is so good to be together. And no doubt we have some new guests with us today as well. We're so glad you're here. We've been going through a study in the book of Acts, and we're going to continue that today as well. And it's been an incredible study. In fact, I got an email from someone in the church just a couple weeks ago, and they were reading through everything that we've been talking about in Acts. They said, what happened? They said, you've got people being added to their number daily. You've got people continuing to be unified and together, uh, living in community. They said that you see people selling their possessions to give to needs. You see people eating together and spending time together. You see people taking risks for Jesus. What happened? The reality is that the church is continuing to explode all around the world. It has not stopped and it will not stop. The span of Acts is over about a 30-year period. And so far, Luke is mostly just focused on the positive things, although he's going to show us some of the difficulty that's found in the church as well. We'll see that today. Because the church is made of people, broken people, redeemed by Jesus Christ. And so there's no doubt we'll have difficulty. But every time God does something incredible, there is also on the other side an enemy that is out to destroy and distract the church from the mission and purpose of God. So the question maybe wasn't so much what happened, but are we experiencing that here now? The reality is that there is an attack on the church. It's covert. It'll probably come out from where you don't expect it. In fact, that attack could very well come through the people sitting in this room. We'll talk about that a little bit more. If you've got your Bibles, you can go to Acts chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 32, but I'm going to start with a word of prayer. God, we just pray that this time spent together in your word right now would illuminate things, not just in our minds, but Father, in our hearts. God, we want to hear from you today. We want to eliminate the distractions, the way the enemy wants to uh, help us to lose our focus on you and your mission. God, we want to make this personal today. Not for the person sitting next to me, the right or left, but God, for us, for me right here. We ask that you would speak to us through your spirit as we study your word, and that we'd be willing to listen and align our lives to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 4, verse 32 starts out and it says this. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. So already you find a common Hebrew saying that would be uh, similar to us saying they were a close-knit community. They were unified. Sure, there were differences, but they were operating as one body together. And we're about to see a description of that that will be unpacked through the next several verses. As we read this, no doubt you're going to kind of have these flashbacks. Like, didn't we already study this at one point? Because just a couple weeks ago, Jeff really did a great job unpacking the end of chapter 2 of Acts. And in it, we see this beautiful description of the community that we all long and dream to be a part of. You're going to actually see some similarities between the two. And I think it's really important because he once again sets this up for us for the contrast that's going to take place at the end of the passage that we studied today. 
So he goes on and he says in 32, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, I know that some of you are looking at this and already you're thinking, hey, isn't this describing socialism? But wait just a minute. Before you go out and buy yourself a pair of knitted gloves, we need to unpack what this is and what this is not. Because this is not saying that they all put everything into a bucket and they operated off that. Socialism says, what's yours is mine. Right? But grace says, what's mine is yours. And there's a big difference between those two. An overreaching government system is going to say, what's yours is mine. Or God's people operating in grace, led by the Spirit, are going to say, what's mine is yours. The difference between the two is that one is forced, exhaustive contribution. That's not what this is describing. But this is describing a voluntary, need-based benevolence. Maybe uh, one way that we could continue to look at it would be through the end of chapter 32, uh, verse 32. It says, and no one said that any of these things that belonged to him was his own. No one claimed ownership rights over their stuff. They held things with an open hand, but they still were in charge of stewarding them. And, but they had everything in common. Another way we could say that is they viewed their resources as a way to help one another. Now, maybe something that would kind of bring this to light and help us understand this a little bit more would be thinking of things as private versus personal. Okay, so those two. We, we live in Nebraska. You can drive around. You could see signs all over the place, right? As you drive around, you're going to see signs posted that say private property, right? This is my property. Stay out. In fact, the next two words that also follow on that sign uh, are private property. What are the next two words? Yeah, right. I hear it. No trespassing or keep out. A clear verbiage to stay out. Now, listen, if you have one of those signs on your property, I'm not speaking against the sign. This is for an illustration, right? If you're a teenager in the room, I'm probably talking about the door sign on your door, right? Maybe. But the idea that I'm trying to get across is that we can view things as this is mine. I found that people with private property signs don't really mean that. In fact, if they have more signs posted, they probably mean it even more. Come in. So if you want to have a good time, go find a place with as many no trespassing signs as you can find. Hop the fence and see what happens. Actually, we live in Nebraska. Don't do that at all, right? I'm just joking. If you have those signs, this isn't against your signs. What I'm trying to say is this. There could be a posture that this is mine. But there can be another posture, a personal property, where you view it as this is mine, I'm stewarding it, but God has given it to me as a gift to use for the kingdom. Now, my parents don't have any signs on the property, but if they did, it probably would say, come on in, right? They've continued to use their space as a way to entertain, as a way to house people in transitions when they have that. They've used their land for retreats. They've sold it. They've given parts away. It's an idea that this is theirs to steward, but they're going to continue to use it for the kingdom of God. This is personal property, but I'm holding it with an open hand. 
as this community started seeing their things not as their own, but as something they could steward for God, he did incredible things through them. It goes on to say, um, in verse 33, and with great power. Now we're going to see great, the adjective, described before three words in this section. So maybe circle them to help you remember. For great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ as Lord. And great grace, there's our second one, was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. How in the world were they living with such confidence and such uh, boldness and such selflessness as a community? Well, before we move forward anymore, we got to take one step back to remind us. You remember as Brian unpacked the message last week, they were being told, don't share this message. And yet they go on and they continue to share it in boldness. And in verse 31, here is why. And, they, and when they had prayed in the place in which we, they gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Did you see it? That's the key. Because all throughout the Old Testament, you see God's presence manifested through fire. In Mount Sinai, God meets with them. His presence is displayed through fire. The tabernacle is built. In fact, in Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, he says, Build me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And a pillar of fire comes down to show them where to go and to display God's presence as he rests in the tabernacle. Moses sees God show up through the fire at a burning bush. We continue to see the sacrifices that are offered and consumed by a fire in God's presence. God's presence is displayed this way, and yet when we get to Acts chapter 2, we see fire again. Do you remember? Tongues of fire during Pentecost rest on top of the heads of each of the church. And there's something significant that's taking place. God's saying, no longer will I reside in the temple built by hands, a temple of stone, but I'm going to live in my temple, which is the church. As the Holy Spirit filled the life of the church, he did something through them individually and collectively that they could never do on their own. The incredible things that we're seeing in this community weren't because they were amazing people. It was because people had been redeemed by Jesus Christ and realized the Spirit needs to flow through my life to help me do things that I cannot do on my own. And when we see that, they come with great boldness and continue to share this message. And no doubt this message has incredible power because it's a message that's being backed up by the way they lived. They're not just talking about helping the poor. They're going out and selling their stuff and literally helping the poor. They're not just sharing with people the messages and the teachings that Jesus had told them about. They're actually living them out with each other in the midst of an unbelieving world watching. And this had great power. They're putting their money where their mouth is. They're giving up their things. The gospel is always a show and tell. Something both we display through our lives and we share through our words. It tells us that great power was on them as they were giving their testimony, but also great grace was upon them all. No doubt this was grace among each other as they looked after each other's needs and they gave grace. But the overarching principle that's being displayed is God's grace was upon this community and flowing through this community. Let's continue to see what happens. 
There was not a needy person among them. For, or in the NIV it says from time to time, as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Again, we see needs arising and they would meet the need. When it says that there weren't any needy among them, it wasn't that there weren't any needy. It was as the needs came up, they would meet those needs. They would continue to arrange their life to meet needs as they came. Here's the reality that they're finding through their giving. In the process of giving, we give away our selfishness. Did you get that? In the process of giving, I give away my selfishness. I found there's often kind of three movements that take place in the life of a believer with giving. The first movement is we go from giving nothing to giving something. At some point in our life, we continue to operate in this mode that this is all mine. And when I think of my money and my resources and my things, I just think of them, they're mine. They're my private stuff. This is my stuff. But then at some point, we get presented with a need and we think, okay, I have to do something about this need. And so maybe you've been in one of those places where they put up a picture and this need starts to work on your heart and they're asking for this gift. And all of a sudden you think, oh man, if I don't give now, I'm going to feel guilty. So you pull out your wallet and you shift through what you've got right there. And you pull out a couple smaller bills, but you've got a couple of those. So it looks like a little bit more, right? And you drop it in just so you can feel good, so you can live with yourself. This is not the giving that God's talking about. This kind of giving is guilt-based. And it's often... uh, spontaneous and passive. We're not thinking about it. We get presented with uh, an opportunity and we feel compelled that we have to do it so we don't feel guilty. Some of us go from nothing to something. We give in some ways. But as we join in the community of Christ, we realize that we are a community that gives together to meet the needs of one another and the needs of the world around us. And so we go from giving something to giving regularly. We give maybe a tithe. We start to plan and map out the things that we want to give. This kind of giving is totally different. This giving is based on grace and genuine love. This giving becomes active and intentional. It's something that I look forward to doing and I uh, regularly want to continue to give in this way. Now there's a third movement that can be given in giving too. And this is going from regular to spirit-led giving. Here's what I mean by that we start to look at all of our life and arrange all of our life to be ready to use all of our resources, all of our things to build the kingdom. So when the opportunity presents itself, we are ready. It's not the spontaneous thing where we go and we see there's a need and we pull out our wallet and we realize we have nothing to give. In fact, we have arranged our life so when needs come, we're ready. We're actively ready to respond. This takes complete surrender. This takes us actually being intentional and planning out and mapping and looking at the resources that God has given us the ability to steward. Now, I heard a a pastor talking about this uh, just last week. He said somebody in their church had come to them and he had gotten onto the spot where he wanted to tithe. He wanted to give at least 10% of his gifts to God. And he was making 150,000 and he was excited because he finally got in the place where he was regularly tithing. The next time this pastor talked to him, he said, Pastor, I'm not able to tithe anymore. I just can't afford it. And the pastor said, what do you mean? And he said, my business did incredible. We actually took a leap last year, and now I'm making $500,000. 
He said, do you know what 10% of $500,000 is? Now, I wish that I was as witty as this guy and that I had responses like this. I just don't. But you know what he told him? He said, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. I'm going to pray that God will decrease your salary so you'll be able to afford to give again. This guy was like, no, I think I'll figure it out. I think I, I, think I got it. In the process of giving, we give away our selfishness. This passage is starting to show us that one of the ways we operate as a church and as a follower of Christ is we actively start participating in giving to God out of the abundance that he's given us. Because really, all that we have is his. Now, as a pastor, I try to drive this home, maybe a little too much. I remember when my kids were young, I would tell them like, as we gave them a birthday present, okay, we're giving you a gift today, but this isn't your gift. This is God's gift, but he's letting you use it for a while. My wife was like, Josh, let's wait on that sermon till later when they're older. But the idea we wanted to continue to understand is that all that I have is God's. I'm going to hold everything I have as an open hand, and I'm also going to be intentional to look at everything that I have in my hand to think how I can use it for the kingdom. Now, as we move on to verse 36, we're going to see two different pictures that are given of giving. It's really important that we understand this because the two look very similar, but there's a few differences that make all the difference in the world. Before we move on there, I just want to park into one area. As we've talked about this, maybe you're sitting there pondering, you're thinking, man, I wish that I could be somebody that was regularly giving, somebody that was spirit-led giving all that I have. But but Josh, you don't have any clue of the amount of debt that I'm carrying right now. You don't have any clue of the situation that I'm in right now. One of the things I've always loved about this church since the time I've come is the uh, importance that we've placed on being generous, living generous lives. One of the incredible resources that we have as a church is that there are actually trained financial coaches, people that love Jesus, that are waiting, literally waiting for people to come and say, we need help to figure out how we could get our finances in order, how I could get out of debt, how I could arrange things so I could use my resources for the kingdom. All you have to do is call the church and ask for one. We actually have a generous living pastor, Pastor Brad Bressel, that loves to meet with people. Maybe you're in a position where you think, I've got resources, I've just never been actively intentional at arranging them in a way to serve the kingdom of God. We would love to talk to you about that. All you have to do is email Brad or call us at the church and ask to talk with him. As we get to verse 36, we meet a guy. It says, thus Joseph, and you might not recognize him right away from that name because he often goes by his nickname all throughout the book of Acts. In fact, he's a key figure that we'll start to see show up later and later. It says, thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, what's kind of something to note here is there's a lot of detail given to describe Barnabas. He's a Levite. This means he has priestly duties in the temple. What's interesting is in Deuteronomy 14 and 15, it talks about the Levites and caring for the poor. And actually, Levites didn't typically have land. They weren't to have land. Their inheritance was in the priesthood. So I'm not sure exactly how Barnabas got land. He was from Cyprus, so maybe his land was back there. We don't know. It doesn't tell us. But what we know is he took a piece of the land. We don't know if it was all of it or a piece of it. But he saw needs and he sold that land and he offered it at the apostles' feet. As we continue to read through Acts, what we find with Barnabas is he was wissy-wig. 
You guys heard WYSIWYG, right? What you see is what you get. WYSIWYG. This wasn't a guy putting on some kind of front. This wasn't a guy that was trying to show one thing on one side, but then he was a total different thing on the other. He was literally a guy that was showing all that I have is God's. And when I give this gift, this is for God's glory. Now I'm speculating here, but what I think is happening is that Luke is giving us a lot of detail about Barnabas because as Barnabas gave, others were noticing and thinking, man, I want to be like that. Man, I wish people looked at me the way that they looked at Barnabas. I, I, I don't think in any way that was Barnabas's intention and his gift, but I do think that started to happen in the next spot starts to show us a little bit about that. We get into chapter five and the first word in chapter five is but. Circle it. Because this is where a huge contrast starts to take place between these two stories. But a man named Ananias and his wife, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. Now, Ananias is a very common name. We don't know anything about Ananias other than he was named Ananias. And then the intentions of his heart in what he does next. Sapphira is pretty interesting though. It's a very unique name. It's pretty rare. The scholars would tell us the only places that they find it were within the wealthy aristocratic population. It means beautiful. So it seems that this couple has money. They've seen Barnabas just do what he did and they decide they're going to give. But look at the intention of their heart. Verse two, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a piece of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So uh, we continue to see the intentionality of why they're giving, and it's going to be unpacked even more. But verse three, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? This is the same terminology that Luke has used in one of his other books. Luke chapter 22, verse 3, he uses this to describe Judas as Judas is going to betray Jesus. Why is it that you, Satan has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself a part of the proceeds of the land? The verb that we find here, keep back, is used only three times in the New Testament. Every time it's used, it's used with a negative connotation. It means to... Uh, a, a secret theft or keeping a part of a larger amount. Maybe we would say it like this, embezzlement. They're embezzling something, which is really interesting because wasn't this their stuff? We'll, we'll see that a little bit more, but you have to understand the intentionality of it. Remember, these guys are coming with part of it behind their back and pretending like they're giving all of it to the apostles in an offering to God. Wow, aren't they something? In fact, if we think through Judas, remember this story? Remember when Jesus had that woman come with the perfume and she's, she's washing Jesus' feet with it? Do you remember there was somebody that had a problem with that? Who was that? It was Judas. You remember why? Oh man, why is she doing that? We could have used that money and offered it to the poor. Remember that? Boy, he's got a good point, right? You know what was going on in his heart? Guess who was keeping track of the money that was offered? Judas. In fact, let me read it to you. Uh, this is in John chapter 12, verse 3. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot and one of his disciples, who he was about to betray him, said, 
Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charged the money back, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Ah, we see the intentionality of Ananias and Sapphira starting to be painted through this passage. Verse 4 goes on to say, Peter's confronting him and says, while it remained unsold, did not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You did not lie to man, but to God. You can fool us, but you can't lie to God. He's trying to put on this front that he's doing something externally when the internal motivation is completely different. Peter's like, Nobody asked you to give. This was your property. And when you sold it, you could have done whatever you wanted with the money, but you wanted to make the rest of the church think you were so noble. You bring about deceit, hypocrisy, and lying to God's holy temple that dwells within the church. So what continues to happen? You have not lied to man, but to God. Verse five, then Ananias heard those words. He fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. Young men rose up and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. Interesting, we don't even know how much because the amount is not the issue in this story. But when Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. That's important to know here that Peter is not casting a curse on her the Spirit is giving him an ability to see prophetically what's going to take place. It's not that Peter is uh, judging her. God is bringing judgment. Peter is condemning her for the action. What's also interesting is the ironic phrase that we find in verse 10. Because three other spots in this passage, we see that they would bring a gift and lay it at the apostles' feet. First of all, it describes somebody doing that in verse 35 of chapter 4. They would the church had sold land and brought it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Then we see Barnabas in verse 37 sell his property and come in and lay it at the apostles' feet. And then we see Ananias and Sapphira again in verse 2 sell a piece of property and come in and lay it at the apostles' feet. Now, in that time, if they had given it to the apostles and placed it in their hands, it would have been a personal gift to the apostles. But by laying it at their feet, this was symbolic of their submission to authority. The church had grown. There was an organizational structure. They started to care for each other and branch out. And this was a sign of them submitting to that authority. But also it was a sign of dedication. Maybe think of it as an offering to the Lord. And it's as though Ananias and Sapphira are holding on to a piece of what they want to hang on to and giving this to the Lord, saying, God, I'm giving you it all. What continues to happen? When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. In great fear, there's the third time, we see it, came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. 
No doubt early readers, as they would hear this story, would have call back to other Old Testament stories. They had heard things like this before in the temple because it was a sacred and holy place of God's presence. In fact, there's this really odd story in Leviticus chapter 10 where two priests, Nahab and Abihu, had offered this sacrifice to God. They didn't follow the rules. They just decided on their own that they were going to go and offer this creative sacrifice that they wanted to to God. And instantly God's fire came down and consumed them and they dropped dead. In fact, the same language is kind of used in that story as the men would come in and carry out the body as we find in this story here. No doubt it's triggering those same memories of how sacred and holy it is to be in God's presence and to bring offerings before him and to live our lives before him. They would probably have thought of Achan in the book of Joshua, who was commanded not to take some of the spoils of the land, and yet he disobeys that commandment, and he steals those and places it under his tent. And his decision and sin brings chaos and wreaks destruction on the whole Israelite community. Because get this, church. Your personal sin never just affects you personally. Our sin affects us collectively. So as the church sees this and this judgment, great fear comes upon them. In verse 11, it says, the whole church, great fear came upon the whole church. This is the first time we see this collective word for the the use of church here. We're going to see it 15 or 16 more times through the book of Acts. But it's, it's talking about the corporate identity. It's the reality that who they're represented represents not only themselves, but each other and Jesus Christ takes me back to a game that I had in high school. I went to a small Christian school, and we were playing a soccer game. We were up in Minnesota, and the game got pretty rough. And our guys were getting frustrated, our team. Their guys were kind of stepping over the line, so we decided we're going to give it back, and we're going to get it back even harder. So I remember uh, there were times where we run down the field, and elbow would get an extra elbow in, or the keeper would be in the air trying to block it, and the guys would just take him out. I remember one guy got a card thrown out of the game as he slid in for a slide tackle and left his cleat up in the air to get the guy right in the leg. It got ugly. So bad that after the game, the coach from the other team came over to our coach and said, hey, I know you've invited us to a tournament up there. Just once you know, we won't be coming. We went in the locker room, we sat down, and our coach came in. And he looked at us and said, When you're out on that field, you are not just representing yourself. You are representing this team. And when you as a team are out on that field, you're not just representing this team. You're representing the school with a name on the side of the bus that we drove here in. And the school that you are represented was established to represent and build men and women that will love Jesus Christ. It's established to represent Jesus. When you walk out on that field, you are not just representing you. You're representing Jesus. It was a long, quiet bus ride home. But the truth remains the same. When we as a church walk in together and walk throughout the week, we are not just representing ourselves. We are representing the church, the body of Christ, and our head, who is Jesus Christ. And what we do matters. Now, what comes next is going to blow your mind, but you'll have to come next week to get that. It's my best Brian Clark. How am I doing? (laughs) But before we go there, we have to stop and park on this just for a second. 
Because this text rubs against our modern sensibilities as Americans, doesn't it? We often have this default posture that God owes us, not that we owe God. We look at this passage and we say that sin wasn't that bad. And maybe if my view of sin and this sin is too small, maybe it's because my view of God's holiness is too small. Church, God is not about playing games. God is working a movement through the church that will reform and rescue and redeem the entire world. And what each one of the individual church does matters. Holiness matters. The way we live our lives, the words we speak, the thoughts that go through our mind, the way we even give our money matters. We look at this and we say, how could something be so severe and so much judgment be so instant in the church? We forget that there's another New Testament story where judgment was instant and it was severe and it was death. When God took his son, Jesus Christ, and he put him on a cross, he put the weight of the world on his shoulders, he put your sin, he put my sin on Jesus. And in judgment, he took Jesus' life so that you and I could experience life in him. Friends, grace is free but grace is not cheap. We cannot cheapen God's grace through the way that we live our lives. I'm not saying that you have to be perfect. The Bible never does. Jesus is the only one that could do that. But I am saying you have to be real. I'm not saying that you won't make mistakes. That's what the gospel is. We all have made mistakes, but I am saying you have to be honest. The greatest attack that could come into this church would be that we live lives of hypocrisy and deceit and lying to one another. It will take us so far off course, we won't be able to join in with the incredible things God has in store that other churches will get to experience. So I just got to ask, where are you at this morning? Are you a wissy-wig? Is what you see what you get? Or are you living lives where you're trying to say, God, I'm giving it all, but I'm holding back different things? Maybe for you this morning, you're realizing I'm a sinner. I need this rescuer. Maybe for the first time you're thinking, Jesus, I need you. I can't do it on my own. I'm trying to look good and it's just not passing. Maybe you're joining us from home and right now or from here in the room, you've got to take a moment and say, Jesus, I know I need you. I know I need to be rescued. And right now I give my life to you. You can have it all. I surrender it all to you. Maybe for you, there's something that you're holding on to. There's a sin. Maybe you're coming in here, you're raising your hands in worship and you're singing these songs and yet you go and you're living a completely opposite life. Maybe you're walking in some secret sin, some deceit. Maybe this morning it's time to say, God, I'm confessing, I'm going to be real, I'm going to be honest. Maybe for some of you, it's that you've been living selfishly, saying, God, this is, this is mine, it's my private stuff. 
You can have a little bit, but this is mine. Maybe God's saying, hey, it's time to say, you can have it all. And start taking steps to be active and intentional with stewarding God's resources to build the kingdom. I'm not sure where we're at, but I don't want to lose this moment and leave this room and forget the seriousness of the mission that God has called us to be a part. Maybe one of the ways that you need to dare to be the church is to be real with yourself and honest with one another. Jesus, I thank you for this passage. It's a hard one, but we are so grateful for it. God, we know that you've called us to do incredible things, to join you on mission, to change the world. And we don't want to miss out on that. God, we've seen you do it through the early church. And God, we want to see you do it again. God, we've seen you do it in the life of our church. And God, we want to see you do it again. But we know that we can get in the way. We can wreak havoc and cause dissension. We can bring hypocrisy. Jesus, we don't want to do that. We want to come with open hearts saying, God, all that we are is yours. And where we mess up, we want to be honest. Come to you and repent to walk alongside one another and ask for help in those areas that we need each other to help us with. God, we don't want to live life with closed hands. We want to walk with open hands saying all that we are is yours. In fact, we, we want to be so intentional about it that we arrange our lives to use those resources that you've put in our hands to build your kingdom. Jesus, please don't let us leave here without doing business with you. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Normally at this time, we're gonna sing a song and we'll walk out. And we're gonna sing a song and we'll walk out. But during this time, I'm gonna ask, would you take some time to just examine your heart? If there's something you need to do to be honest with God, would you have the courage to dare to be the church? as we walk through this together.